everyone, this is Sean White. Thank you so much for joining me for another episode of Think Again About God. I believe that the most important thing about your life is the way that you view and understand God. I think it shapes your reality. It shapes the framework through which you interpret this world. So who is God to you? Um, I have two uh, really big topics this mo- uh, this morning. I always say this morning, but it, I, I, I'm so used to saying this morning because of, of being a pastor, and I do all my preaching usually in the morning. So bear with me. This is not the morning. This is 1.30 in the afternoon on May 2nd, which is a Friday, 2018. I can't believe we're in 2018. It's crazy. So yeah, I, I really just want to dive right into this. So here's the question. Do you deserve love or do you deserve wrath from God? Because I hear this in songs quite a lot today, where it talks about us being undeserving, and and how of God's love and how deserving we are of God's wrath. And I did a I did a blog on this recently, and the the, the title of it was uh, "Deserving or Undeserving." Do you deserve God's love, or do you not deserve God's love? And I guess the idea behind it, like, is if I mean, if one of my kids had to come up to me and say. Um, Dad, thank you so much for loving me the way that you do because I really don't deserve your love. You know, I, I would probably scoop them up in my arms and hold them for a really long time and tell them how ridiculous that idea is that they think that they don't deserve my love. I mean, the fact that they are my children means that they are deserving of my love. And even to use that word deserving makes, makes love conditional. I mean, to deserve something is not love. It's approval. Love is not based on, it should not be based on merit, merit or, or actions taken. It, it really is, it, love is an, is an unconditional uh, thing. It's, it's something that is applied to someone simply because they, they exist and have being. I mean, my children, you know, if my ch- child would ever come up to me and say, Dad, I don't deserve your love, I would probably go to my room and cry. Like, in all honesty, like, I don't want them thinking that way. But we approach God this way all the time. That go, oh God, thank you so much that you love me. I mean, and I and we are. We're so grateful that He loves us. But I mean, we're constantly approaching Him, and we're supposed to approach Him as Dad, as Father. And yes, we mess up, and and we all have issues and problems, and and a past, and you know, a history, things that we've had to work through, and. We all make mistakes, and we all are going to keep making mistakes. And then to think that God doesn't love you or that you are undeserving of love. I mean, okay, there are things in life that you have to earn. Like, I know, like we talk to our kids, like, you have to earn respect. You have to earn trust. You have to work on your reputation. Those things are not just given to you, okay? They aren't rights that you get to have, um, this this is something that you actually really have to work hard towards. I mean, even with us, you know, if if one of our children lie to us, we we say, well, listen, you actually have to fix this now. You have to earn trust because we want you to be able to do special things. But if we can't trust you, then you, you can't do special things. But the but the end of every discipline that we have always ends with me telling my kids that. No matter what you do, I'm not going to love you any less because my love for them isn't conditional upon their actions. That would be approval. Love is meant to be unconditional. Because they are my kids, I love them. 
And I don't want them. I do not at all want them to believe, not for a second, that they're undeserving. Just that they exist, just that they are, makes them, qualifies them for love. You know, I always bring it back to the story of the prodigal son because we have this son. We have this son. You have to excuse me. I, I've I've been a little sick recently, so my I've had a bit of a cold. So my if I grunt and I cough, just bear with me, please. But the story of the prodigal son. It's Luke chapter fifteen. In Luke fifteen, there are two sons. We only usually mention the the younger son, but there are two sons, and they have a father, and the, the younger son wants to go off on a journey, and he, and he tells his dad, Dad, give me my share of the inheritance that's coming to me now. And so the father splits the inheritance between the two sons and gives it to both of them. The younger son packs up and leaves. And, you know, to ask your dad, basically that point in your life where the dad's not dying, he's not on his deathbed, is basically say, Dad, I don't care about you. Like, I, if you were dead to me, it wouldn't matter. That's basically what he's stating here. And so he, he takes his stuff, he goes off on a long journey, and he squanders his, his money on just reckless living, just being stupid, right? And, and he hires himself out to a farmer, and he's feeding pigs, and he actually is so hungry. He gets to the point, because he's lost everything, he gets to the point where he would love to eat what the pigs are eating. And you, you know you've got to hit rock bottom if you want to eat pig food. I mean, that's... It's just gross. <laughs> so he um, he kind of comes to his senses and he realizes, you know, back home, my the servants in my father's house have way have it way better than I do. I'm going to go home and tell my dad, you know what? I've sinned before heaven, before earth. I'm no longer worthy, right? I'm no longer deserving to be called your son. Just treat me like one of your hired servants. So he goes home, and 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 here's the dad. He sees the son a long way off. And he doesn't like go up to his son and you know doesn't like deck him right. He doesn't punch him. He doesn't. He doesn't. Uh, he, he, he doesn't. I doesn't do the I told you so or what are you doing here, son? It's nothing like that. The language seems to suggest that he tackles his boy, tackles him, hugs him, embraces him, and it's an amazing thing because here's this guy and he's been the son right. He's been he stinks. He's been with pigs. And yet the father embraces him even in his filth, right? Like when he's at his worst, the father's at his best, loving his son. And he starts to say, dad, I've sinned before heaven, before earth. I'm no longer worthy to be called your, called your, your, your son. Treat me. And, you know, and, and, and he doesn't even get to finish. He doesn't even get to finish what he's been rehearsing, it seems. And the father is yelling to his servants, go get the best robe, which wasn't like a robe from Bed Bath & Beyond. This is, this is the family robe. And and so it, it symbolized the whole honor of the father. And he takes the robe, wraps his boy in it, because love, what it does is it covers a multitude of shame, a multitude of sin. And he parades his son back home, my boy's home, right? <laughs> he he won't, doesn't even want him to think for a second that he's not his son. He doesn't want him to be a servant, his slave. He wants him to be his son. The son has done absolutely nothing. To, to try and earn this. And I understand love cannot be earned. But then we have, we have the story of the older son, and the older son is the one slaving away. The older son is out in the field, and he's not coming into the party because the dad's throwing a party for the younger son because he's returned home. 
Remember, just the fact that he exists, just the fact that he is his son qualifies him. No matter what the son does, the father's not going to love him any less because it's his boy. And so, so he goes to the older son. The father goes to the older son and entreats him and says, you know, son, why don't you come into the party? And he says, no, dad, you know what? You know, all these years I've been serving you, which is that word slaved in, in, the, in the Greek. I've slaved for you, dad. You're a slave driver. And, you know, you never gave me, a, you never even gave me a young goat that I could celebrate with my friends. Meaning, dad, like, this is, you're, you're a little cheap here and you're, you're unfair. Because <laughs> when this son of yours comes home, you kill the fatty calf for him. So, dad, you're a slave driver. You're cheap. You're unfair. See, his, his image of God, his view of God is just warped. It's messed up. Remember, you're, the way you see God, it matters. And so this, the father says, son, all that's mine is yours. Uh, and so he, he said it's proper to, he says it's proper to have this party for your brother because he was lost and is found. And, and he, you know, he's returned home and he says, son, you know, Basically, but what he's saying is, it's like, son, I, I never required all this slaving from you. All that's mine is yours. Like, you could have had a fatty calf every night if you wanted to. I do own the cattle on a thousand hills. Right? <clears throat> and so, he kind of just blows uh, the, 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 the father's, the, the son's wrong image of himself out of the water. I love this story. I know I did this in the in the very first episode, but it's just so important to see this. Because yeah, I think what, what oftentimes we do as a church is we we welcome prodigal sons, the rebellious. We, re- we, we welcome them home. Oh, God loves you. We want to just want you to know so much that God loves you. And then as soon as they come into the church, we're like, well, now you got to get working because you have to you you are undeserving of this love. Right. I mean, imagine if I were to tell it to my kids. Like, kids, I love you, but you don't deserve it. <laughs> right? This is just, or like, God, God's like, oh, I love you, welcome home, but you don't deserve it. So you better get in the field and you better start working, son. Like, how does that make you feel? And I think we do this as a church. We welcome them home. We welcome the rebels home. Hey, welcome home. God loves you. And then we make them feel... <clears throat> Like, they're so undeserving of it, but you don't deserve it, so you better better start working. And, you know, I know that we can't earn the Father's love, but if you believe that you are undeserving and unworthy of God's love, you can't help but try and earn it. And there are so many people today in the church that are trying to earn the Father's love, trying to work for it, because they think they're so undeserving. It puts the focus, takes the focus off God and completely on themselves, where they can no longer see themselves as sons. And that's exactly what the prodigal fa- what the, what the, what the, what the father in the story of the prodigal son wanted both sons to understand. You're my sons, and I love you. No matter what you do wrong, or matter, no matter how hard you try to do everything right, it won't change my love for you. Because you're my kid. So no matter what you do, good or bad, I'm not going to love you any less because love isn't based on, is not conditional. It's not based on merit. It's based on the simple identity that you would recognize that you're children of God. First John 3, 2, beloved, 
Oh, First John 3, 1 and 2. Beloved, see what, see what type of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And he goes, and so we are. Oh, that's just, that's that's First John 3, 1. Yeah. It's beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But when he appears, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes purifies himself as he is pure. And so you're God's child now. And yes, there's a lot of growing. What we will be has not yet appeared. and We've still got a ways to go. But still, the identity of you being God's child exists now. And I think we need to get rid of this idea that we're undeserving. Because <clears throat> when you think you're undeserving, you can't try and help but earn God's love. And we in t- today, going back to the original topics here, because you know, today... Today we have these songs in in in, uh, in church that we sing that we are undeserving of God's love, and then they sing that we're deserving of God's wrath. <laughs> and and I, I think this really messes with people. I mean, there's this one song, and it's a great song. Don't get me wrong; it's a beautiful song. There's just one lyric I don't like. Okay, in Christ alone, and there's one part that goes till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. So it's weird because we have this understanding that that for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. He loved the world. He loves us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is how he shows his love. And so we have this we have this understanding that God just he just loves the world. But then we also have this understanding that God's wrath burned against humanity. And so at the cross, it's believed that God's wrath was placed, that was burned against us and was for us, was placed upon God's Son, and Jesus took our place, absorbing all of God's wrath upon himself and satisfying God's wrath. So it's a, it's a weird understanding. It's like almost like a contradiction at the cross that we have because... For one, we don't see God the Father and God the Son as one. We see them separated and at odds. Um, where it says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17-19, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting our trespasses against them, and entrusted to us a message of reconciliation. So God the Father was in Christ the Son, reconciling the world to himself. Jesus came to make the Father known. He rightly represents who the Father is. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And he was a friend of sinners. And so, how, what, what, what was it? Was, was, God's, was it that God so loved the world? Or was it that his wrath burned against us? Or the two exist at once? Because, you know, if God's wrath was fully satisfied on the cross, think about this. If the wrath of God was fully satisfied on the cross, why is it that in, in Revelation chapter 16, there are seven bowls of wrath that get poured out on the earth? I mean, large bowls. Angels have to dump these things out. If the wrath of God was fully satisfied, <clears throat> excuse me, if the wrath of God was fully satisfied on Jesus at the cross, why in the world are there seven more bowls of wrath to come? I mean, maybe we should sing, till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was partially satisfied. Right? But I mean, that, I mean, come on, that, that doesn't sound as good. I've tried, it doesn't work. 
<laughs> the cross can't be about satisfying God's wrath if there's more wrath to come. You with me? So Romans 4.15 states that the law brings wrath. Look it up, okay? The law brings wrath. So I guess my question then, if there was no wrath, I'm sorry, if there was no law, if the law brings wrath and there was no law, would there still be wrath? My argument is no, okay? A big strong no. <laughs> when, you, when you actually, when you read through the Old Testament and you look for the words wrath of God, <clears throat> you're first going to see the wrath of You'll see the wrath of you see the wrath of Potiphar, you see the wrath of Pharaoh, you do not see the wrath of God. In fact, there's no mention of the wrath of God for the first 2,487 years, I believe it is. So it's roughly the first 2,500 years of scripture. There's no mention of God's wrath. Then the law is given in Exodus chapter 20. And in Exodus 22, guess what word shows up? For the very first time, the wrath of God. Because, Romans 4.15, the law brings wrath. In fact, the law does more than just bring wrath. 2 Corinthians 3.15-16 says, Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Jesus came to make the Father known because the law actually veils people, veils God and blinds them from seeing who God the Father is. Whenever you teach from the old covenants in a way where you're, you're putting a standard on people uh, the way it was put on them back then, it, it's, you're actually blindfolding people from seeing who God truly is. That's why Jesus showed up to a world of people who had no idea who the Father was, which is why he came to make the Father known. He's the way, he's the truth, he's the life. No one comes to the Father. No one sees the Father except through Jesus. And so when, when one turns to the Lord, that veil that was blinding them from seeing who God is, is removed. So the law brings wrath. It blinds people from seeing who God is. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 56, it says, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. So the law actually empowers sin in people's lives. And if you actually, if you read Romans chapter 7, and Paul's like, I didn't know what it was to covet. And then someone said, don't covet. And then all of a sudden, I can't stop coveting. <laughs> the things that I, things that I want to do, I can't do. And the things that I don't want to do are the things I can't stop doing. Oh, wretched man that I am, Right? He goes on and on. And so this is, this is what the law does. It, it blinds people from seeing who God is. It, um, it empowers sin in people's lives. And to top it all off, it brings wrath. <clears throat> fun, fun, fun. So we see, we see in, in uh, you know, it's interesting too, because if you actually read in Exodus, when Israel first escapes into the wilderness, they complain and they do all these, you know, these things that is not pleasing to God, and they get reprimanded, they get rebuked. But when after the law is given, given, and they do those same things, like the wrath of God, the judgments of God come down upon them hard. It, it's it's amazing because all of a sudden the, the there's a there's a switch in the covenants, and you have to read the, the scriptures in light of the covenants. So, <clears throat> what is it? Did did the wrath of God? Uh, was it satisfied with Jesus on the cross? Or was it was the wrath of God satisfied when the law was destroyed? And the law has been destroyed, by the way. Because Hebrews 8 verse 13 says, In speaking of a new covenant, 
he makes the first one obsolete, which would have been the law of Moses. And what is obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And Jesus said in Matthew 24, this is Matthew 24, verses 1 through 2, Jesus told his disciples that the temple, um, which which encompassed the whole law-based system, would be destroyed. He says, not a brick's going to remain. All of this is coming down. It's going to be utterly destroyed and wasted. And so in Matthew 23, 36, um, he actually says, truly I say to you, all these, because he pronounced all these woes on the Pharisees, all this is going to come upon this generation. How long is a generation? A generation is 40 years. At that time, it was about 30 AD. So 40 years later would have been 70 AD. What happened in 70 AD? In 70 AD, Rome surrounded Jerusalem and utterly laid waste to it. And you actually see Jesus prophesying about this when he comes into Jerusalem and weeps over Jerusalem. You see this in Luke 19, 43 and 44. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. So we have this there in 70 AD. This is exactly what happened in 70 AD. Rome surrounded Jerusalem and completely destroyed the law-based system. The temple came down. They burnt it. It was uh, it was so hot that gold, the gold from inside was oozing out of the bricks, which they collected and took with them. The Romans did. Uh, they 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 um they dug up the foundation. They grinded it down. I mean, it was a it was the whole law based system. All the Pharisees were killed. All of the Levitical priests, the the priesthood was destroyed. Their scrolls that they that they had that showed their genealogies to prove that they're from the tribe of Levi. Those were burnt up and destroyed. It was a system that would never be able to be resurrected. And so it's interesting in Revelations 15 verse 1, because I believe that Revelations is not all future-based. I think a lot of it is historical. And he says, it's Revelations 15 verse 1, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with the seven plagues, which are the last. For with them, the wrath of God is finished. It doesn't make sense for John... um, who wrote Revelations to write a book to seven to write a letter to seven churches in Asia Minor and say just hold on to these letters it's not going to have anything to do with you and you know it's going to have everyone it's going to have it's it's all going to be for the future so we think that Revelations is all going to still is still yet to happen but it doesn't make sense you can't read the scriptures that way you can't you can't read revelations and 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 think that John was writing to the church today no he was writing Jesus told him to write to seven churches in Asia Minor about the things that they were, they were currently going through because Rome was coming in fact the very way in which he wrote to those churches the those those seven churches is the exact order in which Rome would have was was going to Jerusalem from what i understand so when was was the wrath of god did it burn against people or did it burn against the law based system because we find in exodus 19 god's true heart god's heart was i want everyone to be a kingdom of priests he wanted israel he wanted when they were in the wilderness he wanted them all to 
experience God. He wanted all of them to know his heart. They all would have had direct access to God because he wanted a kingdom of priests. But only the Levites become the priesthood because they're the only ones who accepted the covenant. The rest of them said, no, 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 you just give us the do's and don'ts. And we'll meet with you that way. We want to be like all the other nations having do's and don'ts with their God. We just want that. We don't want relationship. And so God changes and he creates for them what they want. That's why the law, the law, the the Mosaic law is not one that reflects the heart of God. It reflects the heart of the people. So that's why whenever, when it's, and I just read this, but 2 Corinthians 3, 15 through 16. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. When Moses is read, it blinds people from seeing who God is because it's a covenant that does not reflect the heart of God. It reflects the heart of the people. God's wrath did not burn against people. God so loves people. What he was doing, what his wrath burned against was the law-based system because it kept people from knowing his love. And it empowered sin in people's lives. They were, we were held captive. We were in bondage. And now it's all gone. Because in 70 AD, it was completely destroyed. So Romans 4.15, the law brings wrath, but there is no more law. That was utterly and completely destroyed. So is there any more wrath? I would have to argue no. That's all been taken care of. So when we sing songs like we're so deserving of, of wrath and not deserving of love, we have no idea what we're singing about. I mean, that's ridiculous. And I think a lot of people, too, what they'll do is they'll point to Matthew. They'll point to to Matthew chapter 5 or verse 18. He says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So it seems like a contradiction when Jesus says in Matthew 23, 36, he says, Truly I, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation, which is 40 years. But here it says... Um, heaven and earth, uh, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So what are we waiting for? Are we waiting for heaven and earth to pass away? Or are we waiting for, are we waiting for 40 years for the law to, be, to, be, to pass away? <clears throat> and what we have to understand is we have to read things in the, in the way that people understood things back then. In Revelations, there is a, a verse that bothers me a heck of a lot that says there's no more sea in heaven. I was like, why is there no sea in heaven? I love the ocean. I love going for walks on the beach. Right? Don't you? Maybe not. But I do. Okay? So it bothers me. But I found out later that that sea actually refers to the wash basin outside of of, um, the tabernacle of Moses. There's no need to wash because we've been made clean by Jesus. And so... In the tabernacle or in the temple system of Moses, there were two rooms, the holy place and the most holy place, which is separated by a thick veil. Now, the, the holy place it had a dirt floor, and they called that earth. The most holy place had the Ark of the Covenant inside of it, which symbolized the, symbolizes the presence of God. They called that heaven. You with me so far? For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass in the law until all is accomplished. Jesus says this is going to happen in 40 years. In 40 years, he said not a brick is going to remain. It's all going to come crashing down. Heaven and earth 
passed away. The temple system, the holy place and the most holy place, passed away. It was completely destroyed. Rome completely and utterly wiped it off the face of the earth. And the law was no more. And where there's no law, there is no wrath. And this, the, the, this passing away of the law was those seven plagues and revelations that were fulfilled. And with them, the wrath of God is finished. Which is why Jesus, when he's on the cross, and he says, it's done, it's over, it's finished. What's finished? And then all of a sudden, the veil gets torn in two, right? From top to bottom, it's finished. The veil gets torn. <laughs> Basically, he's saying, this covenant is obsolete. It's done. And in Hebrews 8 verse 13, he says, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, but it was still hanging around. One Because it goes, and what is obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. When did it completely vanish away? When Jesus said it would. 40 years time. 70 AD. So we sing about these songs and how undeserving we are of, of God's love and how, and how deserving we are of God's wrath. God's wrath has, has nothing to do with humanity. It has everything to do uh, with anything that gets in the way of his love for us. And in, in this particular way, it was the law-based system because the law blinds people from seeing the love of the Father. So I guess the next question then for a lot of people is, well, if God, if Jesus didn't take our place on the cross to satisfy God's wrath, then why did he die? Okay. It's a great question. I'm so glad you, you asked this question. <laughs> in, uh, in, Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 6, it says this. Um, it's verse, starting in verse 16. It says, For people swear by something greater than themselves, and all their disputes and oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a foreigner on our behalf, having become a high priest after, forever after the order of Melchizedek. Okay, let me break this down a little bit. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, God always keeps his word. And so what he does is he, he, he likes to work in covenants. And there are five major covenants in the Bible. Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, and Jesus. Jesus being the final, the final one. Um, and so it's always about God giving a, um, a grant covenant. Or it's, it's like bestowing a gift upon... Uh, when a higher power bestows a gift upon a lesser power. And so... God will not lie. It says it's impossible for God to lie. And when he gives his word, he says he, he, swore, he swore by himself. He, he wants us to have a strong, to have strong encouragement, to hold, to hold fast to the hope that's set before us. He wants us to have a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. But here we are, and we're stuck in a covenant. It's a covenant that doesn't reflect the heart of God. 
It blinds people from seeing who God is. It empowers sin in people's lives, and it brings wrath. So God at any point in time could say, I don't like this covenant. This covenant stinks. Forget this. He's God. He can do whatever he wants, okay? At any time, at any place, at any moment, God can do whatever he wants because he is God. <laughs> He's, he, he, this, is, this is his world. Everything belongs to him. The earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, okay? Everything belongs to God. He can, and God, because he's God, he can do whatever he wants, and I guess it, it wouldn't be wrong because he's God. However, if he were to say, okay, this covenant is done, it's over, it's finished, without dying, then he would be an oathbreaker because he would have broken his promise because he, he made a covenant, Right? When you make a promise, you keep your promise because God can't lie. For people swear by something greater than themselves and all their disputes, an oath is filed for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed with an oath. So by two unchangeable things, which is impossible for God to lie, we have fled for refuge, might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a short and steadfast anchor of the soul. Well, if God were to lie and break his promise with the with the covenant of Moses how could we be confident and have an anchor for the soul and feel secure in the fact that he'd never break his covenant again i mean if he broke it once and he's god he can do whatever he wants why should we feel secure that he'll never break his promise again right I mean, if he were to, if he did break his promise with his covenant with Moses, that that horrible <laughs> law-based system, if he just said it's over, I'm just, I'm, we're not going to deal with this anymore. I'm going to write a whole brand new thing. We've been like, yay! And, he, and then he says it's going to last forever, and we're like, okay, but you still broke the last one. So how do we know you'll never break this one? How do we have sh- such a strong encouragement? You know, because when you when you make a promise, you're supposed to keep your promises. You know, a covenant is like it's like a marriage, right? You know, you say for richer or poorer, and sickness and in health, um, and all those other, and all those. I should know this, right? And all those other. I I, I do marry people as a pastor, okay? Um, but what do we say at the very end? Till death do us part. It's a till death do us part thing, which is why Jesus had to die. Romans chapter 7, if you want to know the reason why Jesus died, it's Romans chapter 7. Verse 1, Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Because not only were we bound to the law, but God was bound to the law. He made a promise. For a married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. In verse 4, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. 
But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So here's Jesus, here's God, and he could have been like at any moment in time, okay, this is done, I'm ending this covenant, but then he would have been an oathbreaker. He can do whatever he wants, he's God, but he would still be an oathbreaker if he were just to end it. But God is so true to his word, and he wants us to have such a strong confidence in him that he'll never break his word. And he says, okay, I'm going to die. I'm going to separate myself from the law. I'm going to keep my word that securely. And through my death and resurrection, you'll be free as well. So he dies, keeps his word, but dies to, to, dies to the, the law-based system. It, takes it all to the grave, pins that written record, that code, nails it to the cross, dies, absorbs all of our sin, buries it in the grave, rises as a new creation, and through his death and his resurrection, he leads many sons to glory. So the whole thing about baptism is about, it's this idea that God has ended the law-based system, and that your old self is now crucified with Christ and you're rising as a new creation under the new covenant that he's made. So then why did Jesus die? Was he taking all the wrath of God upon himself and dying in our place? No! The wrath of God was satisfied against the law-based system at which God did not want in the first place. But he made a covenant, he made a promise because that's what the people wanted back then. And then he changes everything. And he stays so true to his word. And so that we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Instead of just ending it like he could have, he dies to it instead. Fulfilling it. It's absolutely amazing. The lengths that God would go through to keep his word, word to us so that we could have strong encouragement in him. I guess this puts a, a different spin on things for people, but otherwise, if we believe that if we believe that God's wrath burned against us at the cross and that Jesus took our place, then we're basically what we're saying is that the God the Father and God the Son were at odds at the cross, they weren't one. And that God the Son was saving us from the wrath of his Father. So Jesus looks great, but the Father looks horrible. That understanding, that, do that doctrine or theology does not jive with the Word of God. Because the Bible says they are one. God the Father was in Christ the Son, reconciling the world to himself. So may you know the love of the Father. May you not have any doubt in your mind whatsoever that God loves you. May you know that you're not deserving and you never were deserving of wrath. You've always been deserving of love because it's the way God created you and he wants you to know that you are his child. 
He doesn't welcome you home and says, oh, I love you, but you don't deserve it. No, that's not God. And he died not to take our place, not to punish us. He was freeing people from the law-based system because they were powerless to get out from underneath it. Romans 6.14, for sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under the law, but you're under grace. When does sin have dominion over you? When you're under law. Thing is now that the law is gone. <laughs> the only thing that really that, that keeps us in sin empowered in our lives is us thinking that we need to keep the law. It's done. It's over. It's finished. Well, I hope this has blessed you. Your view of God matters. This is Sean signing off. Take care, everyone.